As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Uh, This week we're going to resume our conversation about infertility, which began in our previous episode. If you haven't yet listened to that discussion, which focused on IVF primarily, we recommend pausing this and going back to it, as we're going to build on some of the ideas that we explored last time. Today, our conversation moved on to consider new ethical issues, among other reproductive technologies. This is an area of medicine and science which is developing really quickly, sometimes faster than ethicists or regulators can keep up with. What would it mean if we were able to genetically screen embryos to choose the most desirable traits before pregnancy? Is surrogacy, a growing alternative to IVF, a good option for couples, or could it unintentionally become exploitative? And more broadly, should we as Christians be concerned by this rush to find technological solutions to our human frailties? Well, hello, John. Uh, Good to be back again so shortly after our last episode. Um, Last time, as you know, we we spent a while talking about uh, kind of issues of fertility in the church and society and then we spent a bit of time thinking about some of the ethical questions that are thrown up by IVF, uh, the most um, common form of fertility treatment and one of the ones where there are, I guess, people are most commonly asking questions. Um, today, we wanted to kind of move the conversation on, drawing on, kind of building on what we discussed last time and, and look at some new issues in, in more emerging reproductive technologies, uh, embryo research, um, some of the things that's coming out of the kind of tech, tech world, uh, particularly in California, but also in places like China. Um, but before we do that, one thing we didn't tackle, a kind of another form of reproductive treatment last time is, is surrogacy, um, which is, as far as I understand, it's actually becoming more and more popular at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, so last time we looked at these different combinations, you know, once you've got a sperm, an egg and a womb, uh, there are various combinations and uh, the possibility of embryo donation, of egg donation, of sperm donation. But another thing we didn't talk about it was uh, the other version, which is surrogacy. And so this is where an embryo is created but it's put into the womb not of the genetic mother or another uh, mother, but but actually an unrelated person, um, a woman who carries that uh, fetus, the fetus grows, is born as a baby, and then after birth, the surrogate mother hands the baby back to whoever, the so-called commissioning mother. So in fact, the commissioning mother doesn't have to be the same as the genetic mother or the carrying mother, but the commissioning mother should be a um, 
is is the person ultimately who 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 has the baby. And I, I do remember um, coming across a a a case in the USA which was called Google Baby, where a single woman had decided that she wanted to have a child, but she didn't really have a partner, and she didn't fancy actually the business of being pregnant but she just wanted to have her own child. And so she goes on to Google, she finds a source of sperm, she finds a, a, an egg donor, she then finds a, a surrogate mother who um, was in a, a third world country. She, um, she uh, the, the, the lady is impregnated and then the baby is handed back. And so um, this again is entirely uh, possible to do and, and it's legal in, in many jurisdictions. Um, slightly eye-opening the idea that there could be so many human beings involved with the child none of whom actually have any involvement in raising them um, in in the UK as far as I understand it it's quite strictly regulated um, so for example in uh, if you want to be a surrogate uh, mother in the UK um, you cannot do it for profit you can only be paid kind of small amounts to cover your expenses um, and there's also rules uh, um, about how the the commissioning mother, as it were, cannot compel the the carrying mother, the mother who's actually carried the child to term, to relinquish the child at birth. Um, the child kind of remains legally. Uh, the responsibility sits with the with the birthing mother, and she has to voluntarily agree, agree to to go ahead with the arrangement that was agreed previously. It's not it's not bound in law. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so so this is is a key legal issue. Um, who does the baby legally belong to? And UK law and case law is absolutely clear on this, and that legally, the the baby is is legally belongs to the person who delivered the child, irrespective of their genetic origin. So, the one thing the law can be certain of is who actually delivered the baby. It can't be certain about who the father is. It can't even be certain about who the genetic mother is. But it is absolutely certain about who delivered the baby. And English law says that person is regarded in law as the parent, as the mother of that child. And uh, anything else that happens uh, must be a, a formal adoption agreement. In other words, the mother, the, the carrying mother, must... Uh, agree uh, voluntarily to an adoption procedure to hand her baby over effectively and and of course that also has to be overseen by social services who have to approve um, that this adoption is is appropriate there has to be proper oversight and so on so so it is a very highly regulated process and for this reason a lot of women or a lot of Couples who who wish to um, undergo have a surrogate pregnancy uh, prefer for the 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 pregnancy to actually be un undergone in some other countries which have less tight legal and regulatory control. Hmm. So this is the kind of phenomenon that's sometimes known as reproductive tourism. Uh, so to use an example, you might be a British couple uh, who who can't have a child yourself or don't want to. Um, uh, and so you might therefore, you know, maybe online or through an agency, find a willing mother in another country, um, fly overseas, hand over the, 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 the sperm and the egg or the fertilized embryo, and then come back in nine months time to collect your child 
who you then bring back to the UK and and they kind of grow up never knowing that they spent the first nine months of their life in another part of the world. That's exactly right. And in fact, um, there are a whole number of commercial organisations doing this, uh, are making these arrangements. And there are people, doctors particularly, um, facility medicine specialists, making a great deal of money out of this. And there have been a whole series of scandals. It generally is taking place in some poorer countries, some of the countries of the old Soviet Union, uh, but also countries in India, uh, India and elsewhere, Southeast Asia. And there are highly sophisticated commercial organisations that are there f- precisely f- to provide reproductive tourism. And um, they, the, the, the women who are carrying the pregnancy receive a fee, um, but very often uh, it, it's relatively small sums of money and large amounts of money are being siphoned off by the doctors and the other people who are supervising the whole process but the and and again you know there's deep deep structural issues here so for instance i understand that in some parts of the world for somebody who's who's poor a woman who's poor and who has her own child or children and she's desperate to give them a decent start in life and a decent education uh, here is a way that she can earn the money in order to give her own children the best possible chance by agreeing to be a surrogate mother. Hmm. I mean, it raises for me a lot of really concerning concerning questions. I mean, you have the whole kind of idea of rich, normally white Westerners kind of hiring out the wombs of poorer uh, ethnic, ethnic minorities or people from other countries. As you say, there's this grotesque kind of wealth disparity which makes it feel kind of exploitative almost neo-colonial but then you also have the issue of the child do they you know one are they ever told i would imagine often not but even if they do find out do they have any way of contacting should they want to their kind of gestational mother who who carried them for nine months but doesn't share their dna and hasn't been involved in their on their rearing or is that part of their story just kind of like cut off you know the parents did a flying visit into romania and never came back ever again once they'd got what they needed no, absolutely right. I mean, I think, um, you know, what is actually said to the children and how much information is fed back uh, is uh, entirely up to whatever the commissioning parents uh, wish wish to say. And But I think there are, there are also a number of other very, very painful, difficult issues. So, for instance, what happens if it turns out that the child has a disability? For instance, there's a case where I think a baby... It turned out to have Down syndrome. Um, and what happens if the commissioning parents then refuse to t- take the, the baby back? Mm. Uh, what happens if, because of the mother, um, because of the way she behaved during the pregnancy, the surrogate mother, that she might damage uh, the child? There have been stories of commissioning mothers being forced to spend the entire pregnancy in a kind of dormitory under supervision in order to protect the precious cargo and make sure that it isn't in any way impaired. You know, so it's just a sort of extraordinary uh, potential for abuse. Hmm. Um, and I guess it yeah. kind of points our, our feelings of concern about this, I guess, point to the fact that human beings weren't made to be kind of carriers. You know, pregnancy was was 
in God's order is was baked into the design so that you know the the you would carry the child that you would then raise yourself and 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 the whole reason why for example in UK law the 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 pregnant mother cannot be compelled to give up the child is because that's an enormously difficult painful thing to do you know even if you knew from the beginning that this was the arrangement having spent 9 months nurturing this this new life inside your body to then you know go through the trauma of labor and then just to hand them over never to see them again is is a form of trauma for women isn't it it is and um and desperately painful and difficult and yet um, you can see analogies, for instance, with organ with organ donation for commercial hire again, isn't it? As some desperately poor person who uh, wishes to sell their organs, um, and there are always willing buyers. Um, where, interestingly, the the trade in organs is is generally illegal and severely frowned upon, whereas this reproductive tourism, in fact, is entirely legal in most jurisdictions. Hmm. And and we mentioned at the start that surrogacy as an option is is increasing in prevalence. Is that is that because of you know we talked about before about the reasons why people might struggle to conceive naturally, starting families older, but also the idea I suppose that surrogacy is an attractive option for a lot of same sex couples. Yes, I mean I th- I think the majority of couples going for surrogacy would be not same sex. You know they would be. Um, conventional different sex couples um it seems like a very attractive option you know i mean you know superficially this allows me is a mechanism for me to have uh you know ivf has failed for whatever reason but here is a mechanism for me to have my own genetic child for me to look after him so so it seems uh, you know an ideal solution Uh, but of course in reality as we've just looked at it, it it is very far from it but um, I, as you say, uh, it, it's an option for same-sex couples and um, for, for or for single people. You know, there, there's mm-hmm. no, there's nothing in law to stop someone commissioning doing the Google baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect that this is is going to increase as you know as the um, as the awareness of what what is technological possibly possible increases. on then to talk about some of the other kind of technological solutions and, and work research that's going on around embryology and, and reprodu- reproduction. Um, we talked, we mentioned last week about the, the HFEA, uh, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act, which um, then set up the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, which kind of governs this. Um, do you want to just uh, remind us what, what are the current rules around doing research on embryos what what does the hfea say yeah so it's it's interesting that of course ivf starts as a, a way of dealing with this terrible painful problem of infertility which we talked last week but it rapidly became apparent that it had all kinds of other uh, opportunities and advantages because it gave access to the embryo in the lab so with normal reproduction, of course, embryos are formed in the fallopian tube and they pass down and they're implanted and there's no access to them. Once you create an embryo in the lab, um, you have 
a lot of possibilities. And uh, so the HFEA Act was set up, uh, the authority was set up uh, to provide overse oversight. It both regulates laboratories and fertility clinics. Uh, it insists that every fertility clinic has its own ethics committee, for instance, a clinical ethics committee. I, I happened to be to sit for a number of years on the uh, clinical ethics committee for my local uh, IVF uh, service. And it also um, regulates what you can do with embryos. And basically, it regulates what reason you can do research on embryos. And it says that embryos can only be research can be done for these following stated reasons and only up to it you are only allowed to grow an embryo up to 14 days and after 14 days once the embryo hits 14 days you have to destroy the embryo you're not allowed to continue allowing development to go past the 14 day stage and there are stringent laws and even criminal law which says that if you were to disobey that that um, you would have criminal sanctions so it's a pretty tough stringent uh, act but within that 14 day period in reality you can do almost any any research as long as you it's basically under the broad spectrum of being furthering human health or uh, medical treatments including contraception or whatever else so so a uh, quite a large number of different research projects are carried out on human embryos but of course you have to give the consent the 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 woman who has produce the embryos the eggs which from which the embryos are produced has to give consent for uh, research to be undertaken and are these embryos are they always generated as a byproduct of ivf treatment or do people donate embryos purely for the purpose of research never intending to attempt to re-implant any of them to, to grow them into a child no as far as i know um i mean there would be nothing to stop someone doing that but i think as far as i know in reality these are all quote spare embryos, as we as we talked about in the previous podcast. Um, you could easily have fifteen, twenty, twenty five embryos created, um, following the harvesting quotes of, of the human eggs, and so potentially there is there are large numbers of spare embryos available for research, um, and um, and. and and with, with parental consent, that, that's going on around the country. And the 14-day time limit, can you kind of stop that by freezing the embryos? Does that kind of pause the ticking clock, as it were, on whatever day you are post-fertilisation? You could come back in two years' time and then thaw the embryos and begin research, and they go, they go back to just being six days old again. Is that, is that how it works? Yes, in effect, that's right. The, the effect of freezing is to just... Uh, pause everything everything stops until you re you thaw the embryo and at that point the development would continue but once you've rethought again you wouldn't be allowed to go past the 14 day developmental stage and the the reason for that um you know 14 days sounds very arbitrary uh but it was something that was designed uh it was agreed by the original warnock committee that, that set up the hfea uh Act and and they chose fourteen days be, because it was before the point at which the central nervous system starts to be identifiable in the very early embryo. So it's normally the central nervous system can be identified from about twenty one days, as I remember. And the thinking behind that was that 
in some sense, if the embryo hasn't developed a central nervous system, they can't feel pain? Or is it about personhood? Well, very good question. And, and the truth is, it was very, it was always unclear, you know, what, what was the magic about whether you had a central nervous system or not. Nonetheless, there was a sort of deep intuition amongst many members of the committee and amongst the general public that, that once this thing that was growing in the cell, this embryo, um, if it started to develop any kind of central nervous system, then maybe... I, th- I think the idea that it could suffer pain is, is entirely fanciful, but the, that it might in some way be regarded as a as an individual, as a person, right, uh, was, is certainly and, a possible. And and what kind of research goes on then? Can you tell us about some kind of medical breakthroughs or kind of advances that have been a result of this embryo research over the last thirty years? Well, I mean, it's a good question, and I think it's it would be hard to say that there have been massive breakthroughs, medical breakthroughs, as a result. It's mainly been actually improving the technology behind IVF. Um, so by studying in detail the way that embryos develop, by trying diff- out different culture mediums, by... Um, so it, it, it's been quite a lot of just improving the basic technology and, and there's no doubt that the success of IVF has been increasing incrementally because of a large amount of research going on in embryos. The other major area is, is really very fundamental biological research because it is utterly mysterious how on earth a little bundle of cells which is entirely symmetrical um, works out you know which is its head end which is its tail end which bit is going to turn into a heart which bit is going to turn into a brain which bit is you know because all and all those cells have within themselves that little bundle of cells has everything to make the complete adult body and so there's been a a great deal of very very detailed study you know using electron microscopes stopping looking at every cell, looking at the genetic expression in every cell, trying to work out how they talk to each other, you know, how does it work out where the top end is and where the bottom end is. So a huge amount of of, of very detailed basic science, um, in the hope being that this will teach us more about, for instance, congenital malformations, how they can happen, about problems with implantation, why some embryos implant and some don't, and so on and so on, just basic science. Christians will listen to what we're talking about and be, I think, you know, fair to say kind of repelled by the idea that we are creating embryonic human beings in every sense of the word, experimenting and then flushing them away after 14 days. Do you think uh, that's right? Do you think we should be kind of have a, do you think we as Christians should be ethically, morally, completely opposed to any form of embryo research? Well, I certainly think it's, it is a very important and challenging ethical question. And it's an example of the way that as science advances, technology advances, it raises all kinds of new problems which Christians have never had to face before. Um, and 
when we look into the Bible and we look into the history of, of Christian ethics and so on, we often find virtually nothing to help us about, you know, what to think, how to think of the embryo. You know, do, do we think of this um, being as a just a collection of cells? That's certainly how most uh, reproductive biologists think of it. You know, they say, why is there this great fuss about an embryo? I mean, we look at it under a microscope and it's exactly the same as any other cell. It's got the same kind of membrane around the outside. It's got the same kind of nucleus. It's got the same kind of cellular machinery. You know, every cell looks the same. Why on earth are we being precious about this particular cell? And and they would also say, if you look under a microscope and you look at a monkey embryo and you look at a... A mouse embryo and even would you believe a fruit fly embryo they all look exactly the same they're embryos and they all have the same kind of machinery so so why are we all getting terribly excited about what we do about the human embryo and yet you know there's no controls on what you do with a fruit fly embryo or with a mouse embryo but there are these extraordinary criminal sanctions about what you do with a human embryo mm. and a lot of people would explain kind of secular people would explain that difference in thinking and saying, well, you see, this embryo is a potential human. It's a future human. And therefore, while it doesn't have the same kind of legal protections and rights that you or I have, it has to be treated as more special than just a bunch of cells from a fruit fly. Do you think that kind of makes sense within the Christian ethical framework, thinking of these things, these embryos as p- potential humans? Well, it, it's an obvious way of thinking about it, but... I have to point out that the, the language of potentiality is, is very slippery because, yes, of course, it is true that an embryo is a, is a potential adult uh, human being, but but so is the sperm and the egg. Uh, but do we say, you know, they, they don't have the potential, whereas the embryo does have the potential? Um and and of course, you know the the embryo is also a potential corpse because eventually the human will die. So does that mean we should treat it as a corpse? In other words, the language of potentiality, you know, it, it turns out that pretty well every, you know, the the carbon of my body could has the potential to go into another human being. Is does that mean, you know, my body has special significance? So. I personally find the language of potentiality very slippery and although it's often used by secular bioethics that the the main way that secular bioethicists would use it would say well it's a potential human being but it's not an actual human being and therefore we we can treat it as we like it would basically um so I I would think from a Christian point of view it is more recognizing that first of all the embryo is a unique phenomenon i think it's neither just a bundle of cells nor is it a very tiny baby you know i think both of those kinds of descriptions are really quite misleading i i would want to say it is a unique kind of being uh, to use the latin it's sui generis of its own nature but it does have a special significance because it's an embryonic human. So one of the very interesting things about the human language 
is that there's no neutral language to talk about this being. If you talk about a human embryo, embryo is the noun, human is the adjective, and as I said, you can talk about human embryos, you can talk about mouse embryos, you can talk about fruit fly embryos, and they're all the same because they're all embryos. But if you turn the language round and say, no, let's talk about an embryonic human, then I could say, well, there are adult humans, and there are paediatric humans, and there are neonatal humans, and there are fetal humans, and there are embryonic humans, and guess what? They're all human. They're all on the human stage. They're all on the human journey. So it's interesting, isn't it, that just the language we use changes our moral commitment. And if we think about this being as an embryonic human, then we are saying they're a human being, and they're on the journey to becoming uh, an adult or a, a postnatal human, and therefore we need to treat them with, with special significance and care. Mm. I mean, it always strikes me that, that almost nobody apart from your maybe extreme utilitarians like Peter Singer, would dispute that uh, an unborn child who is 39 weeks and six days and is minutes away from, from going down the birth canal is a human being. Um, and everyone seems to agree that before the sperm and the egg uh, meet in the fallopian tubes and, and, and f- fertilise, that they are definitely not human beings. And the discussion is, does the does the transition from bundle of cells to human being take place? We know it takes place between those two points. At some point between day zero and and day thirty nine weeks and and six days, uh, do we pick an arbitrary point in the middle? And people argue about things like the viability stage and all that stuff. Or do we say the only kind of logical point where you could say something changes substantively is conception? Yeah, I, I would want to have a slightly different take on that. I, th- I mean, I think that is often the way it's presented. I would want to say that what we've got to recognise is that what we're asking about here is not a biological question. I mean, I'm very often asked when I give talks and you know, people say, I've just got something I'd like to ask you. And my question is, when does human life begin? And when so I'm asked that question, I quite gently, but I... but firmly say to be honest I think that's the wrong question because we know that this being in the womb at whatever stage of development is a human and we know it's alive so the question you're really asking is not when does human life begin the question you're asking is when is there a person who we have a duty to protect and once you frame it like that you realize it's not a scientific question it's not a biological question it's a question of philosophy or theology and it's about a, a duty of care. And my answer to that question is, however far I go back into the origins of a human life, I can never confidently say there isn't a person there that I don't have a duty to, to protect. So I'm, I'm putting it in a slightly negative way, but I'm saying I have to play safe. I have to protect life from the very earliest phases because I don't know whether there's a person there or not Hmm. yeah that's really helpful shall we move on to talk about some of the kind of cutting edge uh, of genetics and embryology and, and some of the ethical issues they throw up um, one sure. of the things, one of the things that we've uh, that that's kind of 
been discussed, maybe it's not quite possible yet, is is the idea for boosting the amount of pre-implantation genetic screening of embryos. So uh, you'll remember we talked about last time about, you know, in IVF, once you've you've prompted superovulation and you've harvested, to use that slightly odd word, phrase, 25 or 30 eggs, um, it is commonplace to subject them to some kind of genetic scrutiny um to and and then you select the ones which seem to be most viable um maybe you know not carrying certain genetic diseases or things like that to reimplant but as far as i understand there are proposals to 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 actually massively increase this so instead to produce hundreds of embryos and then to do uh, a much more comprehensive and thorough genetic screening potentially using some kind of some kind of ai technology yes that's right so um at the moment it is possible to select out of the number of embryos you have the the, the say maximum of 20 or so um and and select uh, which embryos to put back but and in some it, in theory it's possible to take a genetic code from each of those embryos and then try and work out which of the ones you wish to choose out of, out of 20 but of course, if it was possible to create much larger numbers of embryos and submit each of them to a genetic test, then in theory it becomes possible to select on a whole basis, number of bases. So we could select out of these 200 embryos which was the ones which had the highest IQ, potentially those the most sporting, those another another facilities um, and as we get to know more and more about the human genome we could be able to predict what the uh, unique capabilities would be for for each embryo so it's it's a kind of science fiction scenario where parents by spending a great deal of money um, could then choose the uh, within certain limits what the genetic inheritance of their child was going to be and some people say do you know what it's their children if they want to waste their money making sure their child is tall and sporty and has dark hair knock yourself out you know we don't we do, we live in a free society where rich people are able to waste their money by sending their kids to absurdly overpriced private schools is this any different well and, and uh, of course that is the argument the argument is a libertarian argument is is why should the state restrict we don't stop people spending ridiculous sums of money in order to give their children the best possible start in life i mean you may say that it's a waste of money but you know in the uk if you look at senior politicians it's still the case that um, senior politicians have an extraordinary propensity to go to a very small number of very expensive private schools um so at that level it works if you can send your child if if for some strange reason you wanted your child to become a senior politician and then make sure you send them to one of these very expensive private schools very true. so um but we don't stop that or feel that that should be prevented by law so why if if you were allowed to spend as much money as possible uh, in order to give your child the very best uh, start in the race of life in the competitive competitive modern world why on earth should you not be allowed to spend money to select the very best genetic inheritance so you get the very best child and the, with the greatest potential but of course on the other side the question is you know we, we're just entering into an arms race here with um and we're we're exacerbating the divide between rich and poor. So, 
um, there are quite strong arguments to say that just on the basis of the common good that, that there should be uh, restrictions on what parents are allowed to do. You could even argue potentially it's a form of almost neo-eugenics of attempting to shape the future of, of humanity around the whims of the rich elite who get to decide kind of which genes survive and which genes get stamped out. Absolutely. But as we know, there are some extraordinarily rich people, particularly in Silicon Valley and other elite circles. And um, this is the kind of technology which, again, can't really be regulated. I mean, we might make it illegal in uh, in the UK and maybe even in, in the States, but that doesn't stop a rich person arranging to do this, even on an offshore island. Um, and so... I think the the sad truth is that the um, it's almost inevitable that things like this are going to happen, uh, however much we feel that this is not the way the human race should be should be going. Hmm. Another issue that's that's coming up at the moment is some people are suggesting we talked about earlier this episode the fourteen day limit imposed by the HFEA on embryo research. Uh, some people want to expand this and say actually we should be able to carry on research and carry on allowing these embryos to develop in in the lab and not have to destroy them at 14 days. What, what's the rationale behind that? Yeah, well, it's basically a scientific argument that's saying that isn't it tragic that we, you know, we're just getting to the point where we could really learn such a lot and then we have to destroy the embryo. And yet we all know that 14 days is completely arbitrary. I mean, what's the difference between 14 days and 21 days? or maybe 28 days. So there has been a proposal that, yes, we don't want it to go on too long, but actually the original Warnock Committee limit of 14 days was is unnecessarily uh, conservative. And if we were allowed to keep embryos up to 28 days, we could learn so much more about brain development. We would be able to, to, to you know, learn more about how early brain development happens, how it can go wrong. Maybe we could prevent more... Uh, brain diseases and, and malformations so uh, that that's always the argument that you know that you're restricting science and scientific knowledge is there a limit on on how long we can with our current technology actually keep an embryo alive in the lab presumably obviously we couldn't we couldn't take the embryo to term when when would it when would it have to be reimplantated or or die well of course we don't know for in human beings because we've never been allowed to go beyond 14 days if we look at other species i think the scientific evidence is it does get harder and harder to keep them alive with uh, existing culture techniques uh, and to be honest i'm not an expert in this area if you want to uh, then keep the developing human alive for longer what you would need to do is to have uh, if effectively an artificial placenta and that is an extraordinarily complex and difficult scientific problem. And so at the moment, the there is no very little serious scientific effort going into creating an artificial presenter because there really isn't very much in the way of uh, demand for this. Um, and the whole emphasis is is trying to keep... Uh, from a medical point of view, try and keep the baby inside the mother's womb as long as possible until about 23, 24 weeks gestation and beyond. Because at that point, with the advances in neonatal intensive care, we can actually keep these very premature babies alive quite successfully outside the womb. 
is your view that we should kind of fight to defend the 14-day limit? Um, do you think that, that the scientists who ask for more are just always going to ask for more and ultimately we have to just draw a line in the sand, arbitrary as it is, and say, look, you know what, there are just too many complex ethical unanswered questions about allowing this to continue let's let's keep the the system as it is yes i mean i personally feel very very uncomfortable about all embryo research and certainly i feel uncomfortable about creating human embryos specifically for research and so i um i personally would would have much more stringent controls on it than are currently there but i certainly feel that liberalizing it further beyond 14 days would be would just be opening up um, greater potential for evil I'm afraid um, even though yes the this is the terrible dilemma isn't it yes the science would be fascinating yes it's even possible that good things would come from it but you know should we do evil things that we feel are deeply unethical so that good can come from it John, there's there's a lot more that we could talk about. Um, uh, as you'll know, more much more than I do. Uh, there are people um, talking about genetic manipulation of embryos, so not just screening, but actually using new technologies um, such as CRISPR to try and uh, snip out particular genes and replace them with other ones, um, which raises a whole host of questions. As even startups um, in, in in America and elsewhere who are investigating whether we can create eggs and sperms from other cells. Um, which has been proven in, in mice and some people are exploring this could be done in humans as well but we don't have time unfortunately to to dwell on the ethics of those but we did before we enter this podcast we wanted to talk a little bit about almost take a step back and think about some of the bigger themes running through this area of scientific research and, and bioethics um, a lot of it seems to be coming round that human beings are pressing hard right now to find very high technological fixes for kind of very common human problems Yes, it's a very interesting recurring theme that um, whereas previously there were lots and lots of limitations about being human and, and, and tragic elements of human, like of being human, like infertility, like um, having a child uh, who, who had disabilities or special needs um, and, and, and so on with congenital problems uh, genetic problems and so on and increasingly the modern <clears throat> view is that we don't have to accept these kind of things that we shouldn't have a defeatist attitude instead <clears throat> technology is going to give us the ability to overcome the problems of infertility of to overcome the problems of um, ensuring we have the best possible children um, and so um, why not the question comes um, why should we stop science? Why should we stop technology pushing back the limits in order to to give us what we want? Which is something we do in, you know, many other areas of life. Um, you know, exactly. we discover that a boundary, a limit to us to want to do what we want. And we invest money, time, research, and we come up with a solution. And then we gladly accept that, integrate that into our lives and move on. Should should healthcare and biology be any different and and i think this is absolutely the the debate and it's certainly the technological mindset you know is how, how can we do it what how how can we 
you know, develop a, a smartphone which has new capabilities? How can we um, develop electric cars, which, you know, and so on and so on. So, so why should biology be different? And I think, again, this comes back to these fundamental questions. So we've talked before about this analogy of are, are we restoring the masterpiece using our brilliant technology to allow creation design and creation order to be um, upheld? Or are we fundamentally changing the design, coming up with a new kind of human being, a technologically enhanced kind of human being? Hmm. It, I guess it comes back to the idea of whether you believe that that there is this thing of created order, that, that the world as we see it is not simply malleable, you know, a Lego brick set for us to take apart and reassemble at will. But there are almost, there's a pattern to how God has created life. And yes, it's marred by our own sinfulness and our own actions and agency. But ultimately, there are, you know, almost grooves that life is supposed to run along. And we and we should have a bit more humility, rather than just simply trying to tear that up and, and redraw the pat rewrite the pattern ourselves. That's right. And Certainly, just speaking personally, you know, as as a younger man and, and a junior doctor grappling with some of this horrendous stuff and trying to find a way of thinking that really made sense from a Christian point of view, I was deeply influenced by the thought of several very eminent uh, biblical scholars and theologians, but particularly Oliver O'Donovan, who who's written a, a very uh, profound book called Resurrection and Moral Order, uh, and, and his basic insight is that in the person of Jesus, and in particular in the person uh, in, in the resurrection, when Jesus is raised as a as a physical, tangible, touchable, recognizable human being, then in some sense this is is God's final vote of confidence in in the created nature of humanity. And that I don't need to try and develop a superior kind of humanity because God in the person of Jesus has said this kind of humanity is good enough. This is the kind of humanity he has endorsed in the person of his son. And, and I've not all theologians, not all Christians would agree with that understanding. But for me, that's been a very deep and, and profoundly satisfying way of understanding um, what it means to be human and what God's what God has vindicated uh, in the person of Jesus. Does that mean that Christian ethics will always be intrinsically bioconservative? That it will always be seeking to impose restrictions and restraint and limits on the furtherance of kind of human technological ingenuity and progress and, and advancement and always saying trying to rein that in and tra- draw us back to that first century human encapsulated in the person of Jesus? Well, that's where I stand. I think having wrestled with these issues for a long time, I I want to, to plant my flag there and say, um, in the end, this original Mark I type humanity, if it's good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for me. I, I, I don't need to try and, and uh, find a, a better way of being human. But I have to, you know, say that there are other... Christians who are more open to the possibility that God has put into our hands, you know, that part of our wise stewardship uh, could involve uh, using our 
technology to um, in some way improve on on the nature of our humanity and and so for instance just suppose we we know that because of our human conditions that there are some terrible evils particularly uh, immoral evils just suppose that we found by understanding more about the way the brain worked and by understanding the role of chemicals suppose we found a way of making people more collaborative more uh, less aggressive and more prepared to um, to listen to other people and, and to work together and so on uh, would that be a, a quote a moral enhancement which we would be justified uh, to make or, or actually would that be to go beyond the limits of what of what God has given us hmm. there's a big question I think reflecting on this, one of the things that jumps out at me is is that kind of techno-optimism that we've mentioned in previous podcasts that kind of infuses that kind of libertarian spirit. It, you know, that, that seems to be driving a lot of this research. It's not just coming from traditional university labs and hospitals, but it's coming from kind of, uh, you know, deep-pocketed venture capitalists. Um, and, and it's this sense in which that um, there's a real lack of kind of humility about the human condition, as you say. Things that we used to accept are now intolerable, and and we've we've resolved all our other problems. Why can't we bulldoze down this wall and you know you know make it possible for two men or two women to have biologically conceive a child? And, and it's, it comes from the same mindset. I, I think that is you know pumping loads and loads of dollars into the idea of extending life. It's this it's an arrogance that speaks to me of a sense in which like why should I, mighty uh, colossus bestriding the universe have to submit to something as petty as such as you know my cells decaying and my ultimate death um, and I think I struggle to see how Christian Christian ethics can dovetail with such a mindset like that well I think it's interesting that actually I think it's quite helpful to see there are two fundamentally incompatible views of freedom here there is that view the, the secularist view that says Freedom is freedom to overcome every bo- uh, barrier, every restraint, every limitation. You know, the only limitation is in my thinking. Once I can conceive of something, I should be free to try and achieve it. But the older concept of freedom, which comes out of orthodox Christian thinking, is that actually freedom is not that complete liberty to do whatever I like. Freedom is freedom to become the person that God made me to be, intended me to be. And therefore, Christian understanding of freedom is always within the created order. It is always understanding there are limits to my freedom. But within these limits, these God-ordained limits, I am free to explore everything that is involved about being human. But I'm not free to change the nature of those humanities. There are some barriers which God himself has placed, and I have to learn to live within the barriers of my humanity. Some people can kind of conceptualise that as freedom to versus freedom from. Um, I know That's you've right. talked before about the metaphor of this idea of a, a fish can only be truly free to be the best fish, the truest fish it could ever be, as long as it is within water. Um, is if, if it sought the freedom to escape the sea, it would quickly discover there's actually no freedom at all there. Um, and in the same way, we can only become true humans, our best humans, within the limits of created humanity, the order that God has God has kind of set us within. Um, yeah, 
And that's right. Another completely different analogy comes from the idea of, of jazz, you know, that um, when when jazz musicians are improvising, they're free to explore, you know, all the um, amazing uh, opportunities of their instrument. But they have to do it within the constraints of the harmonic progression, within the, you know what the other in, uh, people in the band are doing. And if you have complete anarchy, where everybody is just playing anything that comes into their heads, uh, that actually isn't uh, jazz, and it isn't it isn't music. So, as another kind of example of of freedom within structure, it is the way that God has made us to live, and the way that we most express what it means to be human. And just finally, that that's the freedom that we see sketched out for us in very vague terms, but in scripture as well, that, you know, we are most alive and most free when we're the people of God in the city of God in the new creation. But obviously that, that creation is a theocracy with an all-powerful, all-present God at the centre of it. And yet it is in that context, living under his good rule, that actually humans come alive and are most free to be uh, the people they were created to be. Yeah, a wonderful vision. Um, and maybe we should try and pull it to the end. But I, I think it, what it reminds me, therefore, is that, yes, we should be innovative. Yes, we should be creative. Yes, we should be trying to use this technology to the very best and, and uh, best way of, of helping other human beings. But we recognise the limits of the created order. And in the end, uh, it is God himself who defines what it means to be human. Absolutely. Well, thanks, John. This has been a really fascinating, we could talk about this all day, I'm sure, a really fruitful discussion. Um, I hope there's plenty more to be to be chewing on there, but we'll call it, call it a day there. Thanks for your time as always, and look forward to speaking to you soon for the next one. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which has plenty more resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we've talked about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, and you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com, or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic you'd like us to explore, or a news development to respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.